Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Ramadan Mubarak to you and yours. This Ramadan, as we all gather to share a meal with our loved ones, we need to remember those in Gaza who are also gathering to share a meal with so many who aren't there that were just there a year ago. Since October the 7th, the Human Development Fund has assisted over 200,000 people in Gaza, providing them with essential aid, such as food baskets, water, hot meals, winter items, shelter, hygiene kits, and baby formula. Your generous contributions are making a significant impact, especially in Rafah. Let's sustain this momentum and continue providing crucial support during this sacred and blessed month. Please visit hdfund.org slash qalam. That's hdfund.org slash qalam, Q-A-L-A-M, to learn more about our global reach this Ramadan and choose where you'd like to direct your support during this blessed month. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make this month a time of mercy, solace, acceptance, and triumph for the ummah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And may Allah continue to use all of us as a means and never replace us. Ameen, Ya Rabbil Alameen. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. You're listening to the Qalam Podcast. Qalam is an organization that is dedicated to making Islamic knowledge accessible to everyone. Alhamdulillah, Qalam has been able to serve so many people all across the world in so many ways. And now, Qalam has the opportunity and the ability to take its work to the next level. Qalam now has the ability to expand its offerings to people all across the world in so many different ways. Qalam is acquiring a campus, a home, where we can continue to do the work that we do and in fact increase what we do. But we need your help, we need your support to make that dream a reality. Go to qalamcampus.com and donate generously. Every single person listening to this podcast, benefiting from Qalam, I need you to go there and donate and share that link far and wide. And let's, all of us come together, invest into our Sadaqah Jariyah and take this work to the next level. Jazakumullahu khairan. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Now enjoy the podcast. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam ala rasulillah, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wa ala. اللهم إنا نسألك حبك وحب من يحبك وحب عمل يقربنا إلى حبك يا أرحم الراحمين اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وينفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا علما ربنا increase our Lord يا increase our knowledge oh Allah increase our knowledge يا Allah increase our knowledge we ask Allah سبحانه وتعالى for love of of His His love and the love of those actions that will gain His love and the love of those people who He loves إن شاء الله تعالى uh, we're moving forward in Imam Muhasibi's Risalatul Mustar Shideen. Imam Muhasibi, rahimahullah, um, an early scholar from our ummah, and he have le- he's left so many books on spirituality um, that can really, they really speak to us in the time that we live in today if we're able to uh, uh, listen to it and take the messages out, inshallah. So last week we had a very beautiful session um, where we talked about um, khushu, not even just khushu. Thank you. Jazakallah khair, Habib. Uh, we talked about focus in the prayer. We talked about how nowadays it's so hard for all of us to really focus on things and pay attention to what we want to pay attention to. There are so many things that are competing for our attention. And I think it's important for us to understand that as human beings, we have a limited bandwidth, right? We all understand bandwidth. All y'all IT folks up in here, y'all know it better than me, right? It's a limited bandwidth. But the information that's coming to us now is so much. And it's constant. I mean, some of us, we check the news, Twitter, like how many times a day? Like over and over. And the problem is whenever that information is coming in, well, there's less things that you're going to focus on in your immediate. That in my estimation, and I think in the from the viewpoint of our dean, they take more precedence, right? And so what we talked about yesterday, or last week, Afwan, he said, He said, stand before God with all of yourself. And that was our segue into this discussion on attention and focus, right? Attention and focus. So stand before God with all of yourself. And Sheikh Abdul Fattah Abu Ghudda, he said, 
Huh? Uh, I think you, I think still there. Yeah, I think, uh, my bad. Right there. You good, you good, see, we, we good. Bismillah, sorry about that. Um, Sheikh Abdul Fatah al when he said, stand in front of God with all of yourself, he said, yourself, your soul, and your mind. Yourself, your soul, and your mind. And what I was trying to explain to us is the fact that we have this, this environment, this prayer where we're forced to put down our phones and stop the flow of information in just to reflect and detach is such a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or else what happens is we're constantly just receiving, 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 receiving information. And like I said, there's a limited bandwidth. And one of the themes of this halaqa is, um, what's it called? Mental real estate. What do you allow to take, take, take up space in your brain? And as I said, and I'm sorry if I sound redundant, but a lot of us are letting algorithms just feed our brain whatever our algorithms feed our brain. It's pure randomness, pure randomness based on our likes and based on how long you pause on a certain thing. It just keeps coming constantly. So he said, stand before God. So this was his advice last week. Stand before God with all of yourself, jumlatan. Leave everything else. Just focus on the moment that you're in, right there in that moment. Be there. Be present. Now, the next advice. This is for today. He says, zakat. So that first thing he talked about was prayer, right? Our salah, our prayer. The next thing he's talking about is zakat. Now, what is zakat? Just so we're all on the same page. Zakat is, is the money that you pay regularly, yearly, like towards, towards, towards people in the community that need it, right? It's, it's our charity. It's our obligatory charity. Look what he says about it, though. He says, He says, and pay your zakat from which God has obligat uh, made obligatory upon you. And here's the thing I think we should focus on. He says, He says, with eagerness and desire. So I want to talk about this for a moment. A lot of times, we're doing the worship of God, but we don't have that, that eagerness or desire for it. Uh, it's, it's like we're just carrying this heavy, heavy body to it, and, and there's no eagerness or desire for it. Now, I, I think we should go deeper here because what he's explaining is zakat is me coming out of my pocket from money which I love and like, and I'm giving that to other people. Now, many of us, we would take that as a as like a burden. It's something like, ah, I got to pay the zakat. But what he's teaching here is he's like, no, you need to learn whenever it comes to any of the rulings of God, whatever we have to do for the sake of Allah, learn how to switch it from I have to do this to I get to do this. This is an amazing thing. This is an amazing thing. And I promise I wouldn't use examples from running, but I don't even care if you judge me no more. Okay. So, so, so like this was a very hard week for me, like to get out and run and do some exercise. But there was one moment where I said to myself, I really didn't feel like doing it. But I said, I was like, Mikael, you get to run. You get to do this. Like it completely shifted. And it was like, oh, wow. Because we look at opportunities as like, yo, I got to jump on it. And we look at obligations as like, why are you telling me to do this? You know what I'm saying? It's like my mother, whenever we would sleep on the floor, I don't know about y'all moms probably said the same thing. Whenever I would sleep on the floor, she'd be like, if you had to sleep on the floor, you wouldn't want to sleep on the floor. You know what I mean? Like if we have to, but when we have another thing, we see an opportunity in that. And so what he's explaining is a common theme amongst the Sahaba. Whenever there was something that they had to do, they switched the mindset. So it was like, we have the opportunity to actually do this thing. And I want to share some, some examples. Um, one of the examples we, we were studying in Sira today is when the Ansar, so the Ansar were the people living in Medina. And the Muhajirs, they were the ones who migrated from Mecca. So they were immigrants. They came from another place and they moved to this new place. But they were immigrants, so they had nothing. They relocated, they left everything behind. Now for the people in, in Medina, the Ansar, they have all of these foreign people coming to their, to their town. And that's not easy to take because y'all already know how people get. Right? You already know how the, how the red states be, right? Like, right? You already know. So, but the Ansar, this is interesting. This is really deep. When we look at the Ansar, now these are foreigners coming to their town that the Prophet is saying, you have to take care of. 
Now, we would think if somebody walked into this masjid right now and we were like, yo, there's about three families and we need everybody to take a family. What would the response be? Well, the response from the Ansar was eagerness. They actually had to draw lots to get to sponsor and take care of a family because everybody's like, yo, no, no, that's me. That's me. That's me. I got that. And they're fighting over the opportunity to sacrifice and take in these families. And so the Prophet has no choice, but to just say, okay, we're going to draw lots. If your name gets pulled, you get to take a family home. And what that meant was like, you're literally giving them half of what you have. And so I just wanted to use that example because to me, it really spoke to me about taking what seems like a difficulty, taking what seems like something hard and what we're not looking for and learning how to see opportunities in everything that we have. I'm going to switch it now to prayer. I know we talked about prayer last week, but I want to switch it because Allah speaks about the prayer. He says in the Quran, Allah speaks about the quality of the hypocrites that whenever they would stand up for prayer, they would stand up kusala, the opposite of invigorated or eager, very lazily, very lazily. And, and Imam Razi says something deep about this. And I want to share this with you. This is what Razi says. Imam Razi says, Why are they so lazy in their prayer? Listen closely. This is going to hit you deep. Why are they so lazy when they stand for prayer? Because in the moment, it's very heavy on them. It's like that run. It's heavy on me right now. I don't feel like doing it. feels like I'm moving a mountain to go out right now. And here's the deal. And they're not even looking ahead for reward. Because in their heart, they don't even really believe in it. And they're not even worried about if I miss the prayer, anything bad is going to happen to me. There's no punishment, whatever. Why? Because they don't even believe. So what he's trying to say is the reason why they stood up so lazily to prayer is because they don't have anything to look forward from it, nor do they fear any consequences from not doing it. And so to me, that really spoke to me because when we look at any obligation we have, Fajr Salah, whatever it may be from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the moment you say obligation, the nafs wants to run because it doesn't like force or pressure. But if you learn to switch that, and, and people are teaching this all over in all, so many different areas of life, and it's about time we apply it to our spiritual life. If you learn to switch that and say, I have this opportunity, this chance, now all of a sudden you look like the Sahaba because you're like, whoa, I got to go do that. I get the opportunity to do that. Let me rush towards that. So Imam, what does Imam Muhasibi say here? He says, zakat and pay your zakat, give your charity that is ordained upon you, bin nashat, with energy, with eagerness, with this desire to do it. Not just like, oh man, I gotta do that. And I think we can really learn how to love things if we look deeply at what is there for us. Now, that doesn't mean we're not gonna have to push ourselves. That doesn't mean we're not gonna have to push ourselves. I'm sorry to use it. I didn't use it for two weeks, but I'm gonna keep using it. But like that, that exercise, going to the gym, there are days and you know it where you're like, man, I don't feel like hitting the gym today. I don't do it. Your heart wants to, your soul, you're like, I, this is who I am. But today is just hard. That's okay. That's mujahida. We all struggle against the nafs. There's days where salah is harder, but we know what we're getting out of it. So we push ourselves to it. Right. And so that's how I'm looking at what he's teaching us here. I want us to look at all of ibadah as an opportunity Where's the eagerness? Where's the desire in seeing an opportunity? Switching from I have to to I get to. If we learn how to switch that, I think the ibadah and so many things become. Take it like your, your mother. You remember. Now, I want us to look at this from the perspective of how Allah looks at our ibadah. Remember yesterday, last week we talked about massaging your mother's feet? Remember, remember last we talked about massaging your mother's feet? And I was talking about sometimes you're there, but you're not there. You like massaging her feet, but you like, I got to go do something. And then she's kind of like, okay, jow, ruh, get out of here, Yazin, go home, go, right? So there's something else. Another level of that massaging is you wanting, when mom's like, yo, can you massage your feet? And you're like, yeah, I got you. I got you. Like the eagerness to it. The moment you say, ah, right? You ask, you ask Jelani to do something. The moment he goes, ah, you're like, I don't even want you to do it now. Right. 
You say, yo, give me some water. And subhanAllah, the Quran says, and don't say to them, uf. Many scholars say that uf is just the sound of a bit of not being eager to serve them. Just that sound like, oh man. Right? So, so I think we really need to apply this to our ibadah when, 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 we, when we have these obligations before us and you feel that moment where you're like, dang, I got to get up and pray. All of a sudden you shift. And you're like, yo, I get to pray. And you're like, you use that energy towards it. And remembering that the one that you do with desire and eagerness, how does Allah look at that? It shifts completely. Because if you start the prayer with the burden mentality, you're rushing through it. But if you start the prayer with the opportunity mentality, you're loving every second of it. Every second of it is enjoyment because now it's like, I get to do this. And you know, Abdullah, as converts, I think this can even happen to converts where in the beginning, it was like, yo, every sajda was like, man, I get to sajda, yo. I get to hear the adhan, yo. I get to, I get to. And then after you get a few years of being Muslim, you get 20 under your belt like me. You start to be like, dang, I got, dang, whew. And then you got to reflect back like, oh man, I didn't have this for 18 years of my life. I didn't have la ilaha illallah for so many years. So many people don't have this, this means of disconnecting and connecting to Allah in their life. They just go day, the whole day, no connection to God. So again, the mentality here, and I'm going to move to the next one. The mentality here is when it comes to what's obligatory upon us. The nafs, psychologically, we automatically don't like to do what we have to do. You guys already know. You got a paper to do. You'll pick up a novel and read 300 pages. You'll pick up a novel and read 300 pages, but you won't read 20 pages of the textbook. You already know we, we love to do what we don't have to do because that's just how we're, we, we are naturally. But if we switch it and don't look at it as a have, but an opportunity, then it completely changes the, the, the flavor of that ibadah. And not only that, how Allah looks at our relationship with that ibadah, that form of worship. So that's that. Let's go to the next thing. So he says, Make sure you pay your zakat. And what we're saying is all of the worship, make sure you do it in a way that is with energy and vigor and desire, not in a way where it's like, oh, I have to do this. Then he moves to the next ibadah. That was salah, prayer, and then charity. Now he moves to the next one. He says, and protect your fasting. Yo, low key, how many days to Ramadan? Some of y'all like, shake, be quiet, chill out. Some of y'all get hot when people start mentioning Ramadan's coming. You're like, yo, chill out. Let us live a little bit. Ramadan is a great blessing, man. It's a natural reset. And I want to highlight something. All throughout the health sector, intermittent fasting is the biggest thing. Omed, what is it, Omed? Was it one meal a day? No? What's it called? Y'all don't know? That one meal a day joint? Intermittent fasting, 18, 16, 7, whatever it is. Everyone's realizing the benefit of just not eating, not eating for a bit. Letting your body relax. And subhanAllah, as I see just this hype around fasting, intermittent, one meal a day fast, it's like, subhanAllah, this is something that the Prophet said, you should do this three times a month. Just to connect with Allah, you should do this three times a month. Don't eat throughout the entire day. So Ramadan is coming. Um, he says, make sure you preserve or protect your fast. Protect your fast from lying and backbiting. Now, I want to share Imam Ghazali, rahimahullah ta'ala. Imam Ghazali, rahimahullah, when he looks at fasting, he takes us through three levels of fast. Write this down, it's pretty deep. Imam Ghazali has three levels of fasting. Level one. Level one is just when a person refrains from food and intimacy for the, days, the time of the day. That's it. What he means by that is you have a perfect fast from a fiqh perspective. You just did what a Muslim does. They don't eat. But your actions or your psychologically or spiritually, nothing changed at all. You just didn't eat throughout the day. Now, from a fixed perspective, obviously your fast counts. But spirituality is not just about the form. It's not just about the external, but the reality of that thing. And so Imam Ghazali says the next level up is not that you fast from food, but you fast with the limbs. You fast with your eyes from looking at haram. You fast with your tongue from speaking what's haram. You fast with your ears from speaking, from listening to something haram. He says it's a whole body fast now. So now it's not just the physical form, but there's a deeper reality to your, to your body fasting. Now that's what Imam Muhasibi is talking right now. 
See, here's the deal. Imam Muhasibi is living in a very rich, like Islamic culture. Everyone is Muslim around him. But when everyone's Muslim, we sometimes forget to go to that deeper level of the ibadah. And it just becomes the external form. So Imam Muhasibi is like, look, when you're fasting, stop focusing on just the form and ask yourself, am I really fasting here on a spiritual deeper level? So that's what he's highlighting. What's the third level of fast, according to Imam Ghazali? What's the third level? If the one is the physical, the deeper one is the body. The next is the mental. And this is pretty deep. It goes back to our concept of focus and attention. Um, how, can, how long can you sustain one thought? How, can, how long can you sit down and contain one train of thought? For many of us, it may be like a really short time. Imam Ghazali says, now this for all of us, we're going to be like, all right, that's crazy. Sorry. Cool. Uh, Imam Ghazali says that the third level of fast is that you fast with your, your mind or heart from any thoughts other than God. Now, right away, you're like, oh, I, I, like my fast broke like this. Right. It's like that. But so what Imam Ghazali is talking about, he's saying that. And I think for us, what it would be is imagine if you took the time from Asr to Maghrib. Let's start. We're, we're babies. We have to walk a bit, crawl before we walk. Imagine if you took the time from Asr to Maghrib for your fast. And you're like, right now, I, I'm mentally fasting. My thoughts are only about Allah and the hereafter. That's it. My mind is only there. I'm not going everywhere. My mind isn't all over scattered. This message, that thing, thing that thing, this thing. No. Fasting mentally for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So fasting with the heart is the highest level. And he says the, the way you break that fast is your attention goes away from Allah to something else. Now listen, it connects to the prayer. Think about it. The prayer, you stand up. If you prayed a prayer and never thought about God from a thick perspective, it counted completely. You stand up and in each rakah, you never even thought about God. Does that prayer count from a thick perspective? Yeah. But did it really affect your heart? No, it didn't. The deeper prayer, as we talked last week, is when your heart and mind is present in that prayer. So similarly with the fast, if you want to take the fast to the next level, at least go to the level where I'm not sinning anymore. My limbs are fasting from, from stuff. But the higher level is the fast mentally, where we learn how to focus our, our thoughts on one thing. And again, I think that's a crisis that we're living in right now, where we don't have environments of focus anymore. We don't have, and alhamdulillah, the masjid is a place. We are so lucky we have a place where you walk in and it's like, turn your phone off. Turn your phone off. Because it, it, the, 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 the environment of the place is conducive to focus. Whereas everywhere else around us is not conducive to focus at all. At all. So he says, those, those are the three levels of Imam Ghazali when it comes to fasting. So, wahfad sawmaka min al-kidhib wal ghiba. That's his last advice regarding fasting. He says, and take into consideration or be aware, be aware, the right of your neighbor. Take into consideration the right of the poor. And take into consideration the right of close people. I'm going to start with the last one. When he wrote these words, the right of people close to you. What do you think he was referring to? Qareeb, fan. Makar. <laughs> My man, he said family, Qareeb. And he's right. He's right. The word Qareeb relates to family. But I want you to look at it from a different perspective. Think about this. Through social media and through our, our networks, just look at your WhatsApp groups, right? Or, uh, I mean... For the uncles and aunties, like myself, okay? Or your telegram groups, right? How much attention do we give to people who are distant to us? Do you get what I mean by that? Okay, let me break it down a little deeper. So imagine this. I'm sitting down on my couch at home. Picture yourself. And next to me is Maria, Karima, or Qasim, my three, right? And I'm on my phone on a telegram group talking to somebody in Cali, Detroit, New York, somewhere else. The time that would normally be given to people close to me is now being spread all over the, the verse, all over the everywhere. And what he's teaching us here is you have to learn proximity is priority. Proximity is priority. There are people who are really close to you that nobody else can emotionally nurture them. 
That's your responsibility to do. Nobody else is going to do that. But we have been so pulled by this WhatsApp group, that Telegram group, this group, this group, that the time you would have normally naturally given, you come home naturally. You know, you came home. Think back sometime. Like, you came home. You didn't have those pulls left and right. You came home and you were with the people close to you. So you were able to take into consideration the right of people close to you. But now our attention is so fractured with people so far away that everyone feels neglected because the people closest to them are not the ones nurturing and taking care of them and fulfilling those rights that they have. So he says, and that's the first thing I want to highlight, which is take into consideration the rights of your neighbor, your, the, the poor, and the qareeb. Qareeb meant family. I'm saying, yes, it means family, but just think of how much our attention goes to the ba'id, the people far away from us. You know, I'm like answering a random message from somebody. Yo, that's time you could have been given to your son, to your daughter, to your wife, to your husband. And I think a lot of our time has been spread out so far out, so far out. Um, now, there's another thing here I really wanted to talk about. This is our first time we actually get to talk about something called hukukul ibad. Hukukul ibad. So this is something that the Prophet ﷺ, he really emphasized. He, he taught us that there's two types of rights. The rights of God and the rights of the servants. Now as Muslims, Tawheed, oneness of God, all of us in our mind is that the right of God is the most paramount thing. But it's quite the contrary. The Prophet ﷺ actually taught that it's the rights of people that are the most important thing for you to focus on. Why is that? Here's the key. Because on the day of judgment, the Prophet taught us that Allah can forgive his rights but he can never forgive the rights of other people. There was a beautiful narration I want to share with you from Ibn Mas'ud. Ibn Mas'ud says this, and I want you to really picture what we're reading here. Ibn Mas'ud says, on the day of judgment, a person, a person, male or female, their hand will be grabbed on the day of judgment. A caller will call out, a caller will call out, in front of everyone in presence. Hada Fulan ibn Fulan or Binta Fulan. This is Mikael, the son of Mikael, the son of such and such. If anyone in this entire gathering, all of humanity, has a right that he owes you, come forward, step forward. Is there anyone? Now, in the, it goes forward. So someone will be happy. Now, this is the crazy part. Someone will be happy if they have a right owed to them from their father, their mother, their wife, their child, anyone. Why? And then Ibn Masood, he recited the verse, Fala ansaba yawma There's no relations on that day. There's no more family on that day. In that moment, everyone is so concerned with their own hereafter that they're not focused on family no more. So if there was any right, now the reason why this scared me so much is as an older brother, sibling, father, mother, have you really fulfilled the rights of your, the young people around you? As a son, as a son, have you fulfilled that haq of your, of your mother, your father? Have you fulfilled that right? So the hadith continues. He says, God will forgive his right. You missed the prayer, you didn't pay zakat, you didn't do this, you didn't do that. God can forgive that. But the rights you owe your mother, your wife, your whoever is closest to you, those rights God will never forgive. But then, so then the narration continues. So this person, me or you, will be stood up in front of everyone. And they will say, come, whoever has a right, if you have a case against this person, any right, come. So the narration says, but the people will be like, Ya Allah, the dunya is over. How can he pay back our right? And y'all know the rest of it. The narration says that Allah will say, yeah, this is qiyamah. So take this person's hasanat if he has any. Take some hasanat, take some good deeds. Oh, this person doesn't have any good deeds. Oh, no problem. Take some of your sins and put it on this person's scale. So the idea, this is really heavy. The idea that's being communicated here is that we really need to be conscientious of the rights of people around us. And are we fulfilling those rights of people? So he says first, three areas that he highlights. Number one, the right of the neighbor. Now, when you think of neighbor, what do you think of? 
You think, uh, you know, Robert, our next door neighbor, Jill, I got Robert and Jill on both sides, right? I don't know who you got. So first of all, let's look at what are the rights of neighbors? We're going to make it very simple. The first thing is what is a neighbor? The way neighbors are broken down is it's based on orf. It's based on where you live, what it's like there. But neighbor is not specific to who lives next to you. Neighbor is who sits next to you in a dars. Neighbor is who works next to you in the cubicle next to you in the office. Where, your neighbor is the person who studies next to you all year at Qalam. Neighbor are, are people who just share space with you. Share space at any moment in time. That's your neighbor. And Islam is teaching us. Now, If I when I start to go through these rights of neighbors, you're going to realize that the key to fulfilling the rights of neighbors is we have to learn to tap into the feelings of those around us. Tap into the feelings of those around us. Let me give an example. The Prophet was once sitting in the masjid by himself. This is a beautiful example of what I mean by tapping into the feelings. The Rasul is sitting in the masjid by himself. A Sahabi walks into the empty masjid. Empty masjid. No one's there. The Prophet scooted over. Now I want you to imagine, yo, yes, you walk in the masjid, Imam sitting down, he sees you, he moves over. The Sahabi, he says, Ya Rasulullah, there's plenty of space and I'm not that big. There's plenty of space. I ain't that big, Ya Rasulullah. The Prophet said, no, it's the haqq of every Muslim that when they you see them, you at least move for them. You at least move. Why? What happens? You ever walk late into the class? Everybody look at you and then don't move? You'd be like, dang, should I just dip? You know what I mean? If you like me, you just like, excuse me, <laughs> right? Just come in, right? But if, if someone, but if you came in the class, someone looked and they were like, you're like, oh, okay, let me come in. This is my spot. Okay. Someone recognized me. Someone. So the Rasul Sallallahu he's like, recognize people, understand. And so I'm going to go over four basic uh, rules of, or rights of your neighbor. And remember, don't be so simplistic in our thinking of neighbor, your coworker, neighbor, next to you, classmate, whoever, person in your, in your halakha together, that's your neighbor. So number one, the Prophet Sallallahu said, Wallahi la yu'min, Wallahi la yu'min, Wallahi la yu'min, three times. I swear by God, this person isn't a believer. I swear by God, this person isn't a believer. I swear by God, this person isn't a believer. Rasul Sallallahu said, the Sahaba are like, who, who, who? The Prophet Sallallahu said, man la yaman jarahu bawa'iqa. The one who is not safe from the harm of their neighbor. Their neighbor is not safe from their harm. So the first thing is we're never bringing harm to people. Never bringing harm in any way. In any way. But now that's so subjective, right? It's like, what do you mean harm? Like, I'm smoking a brisket. You don't like the smoke? Like, what am I supposed to do? I thought it smelled good. Like, I thought I was helping you. I thought it was something nice. So that brings me to the next thing, which number two right of the neighbor. And this shows the balance is to to be forbearant with the harm of a neighbor is also the haq of the neighbor. So think of it this way. The Prophet in a beautiful way combined two things. He's teaching on one side, never harm someone. But the harmer often doesn't think they're harming. They're like, yo, I left that out on purpose. Like, you know, the things we leave on the, on the bathroom counter. Like, I left it there on purpose, Lima. Like, I left it for you. She's like, no, you could have put it away. Right. A lot of times the neighbor doesn't think they're harming. So the second right of the neighbor is the capacity to take to deal with things they don't like. So number one, never bringing harm to another person. Number two is the capacity to take be forbearant on the harm that others are doing. Number three. Number three, protecting them from harm. Over the last year or so, we've seen an increase in just random violence, especially like against the Asian community across the country, just random acts of violence. And the thing that irks us the most is when we watch that, we see people around that are just like, as if, as if they're not there. Islam is like, nah, man, like the right of your neighbor is to protect people from harm. The right of your neighbor is to speak up, help people out, look out for them. Not be a part of such an individualistic society where it's like, whatever's happened to you is happening to you. It's not happening to me. I don't care about it. By, by no means is that. So the next one, number three, is to protect them from harm. 
That means helping people out, looking out for people, going out of your way to help them and protect them. And the last one, the last right of the neighbor is a concept called ihsan. Ihsan is, it's a hard term to, to, to explain, but basically it's when wrong is done to you, put it like this. So there's three levels of interaction. There's oppression. Someone didn't do anything to you, but you do something to them. There's justice, which is someone did something back to me. I do right back to you what you did to me. Justice, it's fair. You hit me, I just hit you, nothing extra. And ihsan. Ihsan is you did wrong to me. And what do I do? I do good to you. Right? So three levels, revenge or, or oppression, justice. I just do right back to you what you did to me. I didn't do anything wrong. You hit me, I hit you back. But then there's ihsan. Ihsan is you do something wrong to me. And I'm like, yo, how can I help you, bro? What do you need? So that's the neighbor. These are four, generally speaking, if we look at all the rights of neighbors, all of the rights will fall under this four categories. Not to bring harm, to deal with the harm, to protect from harm, and to do ihsan, to do righteousness. Which one? Yeah, deal with the harm. So the brother's asking for the meaning of like deal with the harm. So, so check this. When I talked about the Ansar, for example, the Prophet Sallallahu talked about the Ansar uh, taking care of the immigrants that came to them, right? But what did he also say to the immigrants that came? Take care of yourself. Work hard. Establish yourself. So there's almost two messages going out. What are the two messages? To this group, the message is, hey, sacrifice everything you have for the well-being of these people. And to these other, the other side, the message is, do everything you can to work for yourself and try hard. Do you understand what I'm saying? Similarly, in this example, there's two ways we can look at the rights of neighbors. One is that you're never causing harm, right? So I'm actively in my mind trying to think I'm never causing harm. But the problem there, what's the main problem? We never really notice sometimes where we're causing harm. I thought it was Adi, Shay, it was nothing big. It was a small thing. But you're like, yo, that was big. So now what do we do in that case? This is where this one comes in, where the Prophet Sallallahu teaches us, learn how to deal with the inconveniences or the harm that come from other people too. Learn how to handle it. You understand what I'm saying? Does that make sense? So what does he say? Imam Muhasibi, he says, Be conscientious all the time of the right of your neighbor, anyone next to you, anyone works with you. Business partner, jar, someone close to you. Well, miskin, and the last one we didn't talk about is miskin, poverty, those who are poor. When we look at the Prophet, وسلم, the Ashab al-Sufa, we were just studying this in Sirah today. The Ashab al-Sufa were a poor group of Sahaba who only thing they wanted to do was study the deen. They didn't have any money. They didn't have any homes. The Prophet وسلم, every night would sit with them. He would eat with them. And then when Isha time came, he would divide them amongst the community. Like, yo, Abdullah, you go to that house. You go to that house. Who can take this person? Who could take that person? My main point is that Rasul was always around the poor people. He was always with the people who were poor. He didn't make it a habit to stay around the affluent people. He made it a habit to stay around the people who society normally stays away from. And in our time, we have a major problem with blaming the poor for their poverty. Now, I get it. You worked very hard to get to the accomplishments you all got to. You studied hard. You did a lot. But you must remember that those are blessings from God. And sometimes you drive past somebody and you see them in a situation, you best believe that could have been you. That could, if one small thing changed, that could have been you. That could have been you. And so the Prophet, he never blamed people for the poverty that he went through. In fact, the Prophet himself, he chose, now this is deep, this is a higher level, he chose poverty, which means stuff would come to him. Have you ever thought about how you read the hadith where the Prophet was hungry and you're thinking in your head, but weren't there a lot of people in Medina with food? You ever read those hadith and think about it? Like, how is he so hungry? And Uthman bin Affan is like, got bank, right? It's because the Prophet's poverty was, a, a he chose poverty. Okay, why would he choose poverty? If he was rich, it'd be sunnah to be rich. And we all be struggling to be like the Prophet, so I said that. Think about, hold up, yo. If he was wealthy and chose wealth, man, we, we who be here? Man, I got work tomorrow. Why? Sunnah. Stack that cake is sunnah. 
stacking cake. It's sunnah, man. We got to get that money. It's sunnah. And then if I'm not wealthy, dang, I can't follow that sunnah. The Prophet chose his way to be the way of poverty. So that, so that we're never competing to be like him in the dunya. It's absolutely beautiful. So the problem we have now, the problem we have is blaming uh, the poor for their poverty. And I think that's something we need to be very careful of. The prophet loved the poor. He stayed with the poor. He chose the poor. There's a beautiful hadith. He said, if you're looking for me, find me with the poor. If you want to find me on day of judgment, I'll be with the poor. Oh Allah, resurrect me. Allahumma shurni fi al-masakin. Oh Allah, resurrect me amongst the poor. That's who he wanted to be with. And so we have to make sure that the communities that we create, everyone feels welcome. The rich people of Mecca, they said to him, they said, Ya Rasulullah, we, we don't mind listening to you, but you need a separate majlis for us. Like we can't sit next to those people. That's not our class of people. And the verses were revealed to the Prophet What's the verse? The Prophet was told, never ever turn away. Stay with the people who are calling upon their Lord. That's the verse. And the verse is, if you read the hadith about it, the verse is telling the Prophet, stay with Bilal, stay with Suhaib, stay with Salman Farsi, stay with those people. You don't have to set up a separate group just for the wealthy people. So if our masjids become country clubs, that's not what we want. That's not what we want. We want to be, be like the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi attached to the people who are in need and have a pulse on the community of those who are in need. So what are, these are the three areas. He says, be conscientious of the rights of your neighbor, anyone close to you, always thinking. And I said, what? Tap into the feelings of those around you. How will this affect the person next to me? Well, miskeen. Be, beware or be conscious of the right of the miskeen. Notice, here's the crazy part. Notice it says the right of the miskeen. You know when you give to someone, don't you have this thing like I'm giving from me? Like this is mine? The Quran shifts that paradigm. Because the Quran, Give the poor person their right. As if to say to us, like, yeah, you have money, but don't forget they have a right on that money too. Like we're part of a society. This isn't just about you. What's their right to this wealth? So again, think about the right of your neighbor, the right of the poor, and the right of the qareeb. The qareeb are those closest to us. If there's any moment where there's something far from you, someone far from you, pulling your attention, but there are people close to you that need your attention, right away you should be thinking, shouldn't I be focusing on these people right near me? Uh, let's just do a little bit more, inshallah. So he says, وَأَدِّبْ أَهْلَكَ And teach your family adab. Teach your family adab. So, um, so like, when I was growing up in an American household, y'all know about the elbows on the table? Y'all know about that too? Okay. So when I was growing up, moms taught us adab. You know what I'm saying? You go into a certain place, how to act. You go to into a certain place, how should you carry yourself? You answer the phone, how do you answer the phone? Y'all know about those two voices, right? Okay, so there's an adab for everything, an etiquette for everything. Um, we live in a time where it's like, why should I do that? Why should I? I could do what I want, where I want, how I want to. And culture has never been like that. In America, like there's an adab, an etiquette to things. And the, 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 what he's teaching us here is adab. So Mufti Kamani was just doing a whole series on Islamic adab, adab, al-Islam, different etiquettes of the deen. Things that, how do we do things? How do we carry ourselves? How do we talk to people? Things like that. And so what he's, think, what he's talking about is teach your family adab, learn adab. Learn how we interact. Learn how the Sahaba interacted with the Prophet Sallallahu Let me give an example, and I'm not going to give a whole lecture on adab. Mufti Kamani just did a beautiful series on it. But like... The Sahaba would not call the Prophet ﷺ by his first name. Oh, Muhammad. Oh, Muhammad. They wouldn't do that. It's against the adab of Rasul ﷺ. What is adab? Adab is just, it's, it's an etiquette, a way you interact. 
Is there anything really wrong with your elbows on the table? Like low key, is there anything really wrong with it? You're like, nah, but it's against an adib. It's against an etiquette. It's against, it's against a, a way of carrying ourselves, of being cultured. And so Islam has a, a lot of adab that we, the prophet taught the Sahaba and that were passed on. And what he's teaching us now is in our households, there should be places where we pass on that adab to the next generation. And those adab can be about the masjid. It can be about so many things. But he's saying, make sure you pass on those adab within our households. And unfortunately, I think in some of the younger generations, it's kind of like, yeah, why should I do that? What do you mean? Like, whatever. I can act however I want in wherever I want. But that's that's not a cultured person. There's an etiquette for everything, a way things should be. So he's like, well, adib ahlak. So in our households, let's teach the younger people adib. Warfuk bima malakat yaminuk. And be gentle with people that work under you. If you're someone in charge, you have a crew under you, project managers in the house, represent a bunch of y'all, right? Be gentle with them, understand them, connect to them. And be a person that is always standing up for what is true. And the last thing, and this is a beautiful point, we'll end with this. He says, He says, and always have mercy on sinful for sinful people. This is a very big thing, very beautiful thing. We can really make people who are caught up in sins feel horrible. Instead of making them feel that they deserve Allah and Allah loves them. What he's teaching us here is to be gentle on people that are sinners. We, first of all, we're all sinners. That's the first thing we need to recognize. But what he's saying is this thing that we talked about recently, which is the hatred for the sin, but the love of the person, right? The love of the person. And one of the most beautiful advices I ever heard is whenever you want to give advice to someone about a sin, imagine that's your mother you're talking to. Imagine that's your mother. Do y'all know how you would talk to mom if you want her to change something? You're going to call her five times first, just like talking about some random stuff, right? You're going to prep it a certain way. You're going to talk for 30 minutes before you even get to the point. But when you don't know somebody, you just be like, oh, excuse me, ma'am, uh, that's not correct right there. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Whoa, hold up. Do you really want change for that person or are you just trying to put get, your, get it off your shoulders? So my advice is whenever you're giving, uh, giving advice to people, do it the way you would give your mother advice. Do it the way it, and unfortunately we have this like, we're so hard in the community because we have an ethos, we have things that we hold as right and this and that. But the adab he's teaching is, yo, in a Muslim community, you need to have mercy on them with Nibin. You need to have mercy on them. You need to have mercy because that mercy is what's going to bring them back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The harshness, why are you doing this? What's wrong with you? Don't you know? Didn't you learn? That's just going to push people away. So what is he teaching us here? He's saying, have mercy, be gentle, be loving for the people of sin. I'll just end with this hadith. The Prophet Sallallahu he said, Shafa'ati li ahlil kaba'iri min ummati. The Prophet Sallallahu said, my intercession will be for the people who committed a lot of sins on the day of judgment. Those are the people that I'll be intercessing, interceding for. So again, just the idea of having mercy on people and, and, and really desiring them to come back to the truth means that you show them mercy. So وَأَلْزِمْ رَحْمَةً لِلْمُذْنِبِينَ وَلَا تَدَعَ النَّسِيهَ لِلْمُؤْمِنِينَ And always wish well, hope well. Here's the part. He connected sins and hoping well, wishing well. Now this is, forgive me if it gets prolonged here, but this is important. He's connecting two things. Nasiha. Nasiha in Arabic means to wish well for somebody. To actually want them to get better. Like somebody's sick, you actually want them to get better. You wish that they become a better person. That's nasiha. Now, why did I say treat everyone like your mother? Because there's a there's sometimes we're giving nasiha. How do we normally translate nasiha, by the way? Advice. Sometimes we're giving advice. And the way we're giving advice is if I really don't care if you change, I just got to get this off my shoulders. I'm just trying to get this burden off. I told you. Now it's up to you. That's not nasiha. That's not nasiha. Imam Shafi used to say, if you publicly correct a person, you haven't corrected them, you disgrace them. Imam Shafi said, if you ever publicly, publicly correct a person, 
Don't get me wrong. Some things are done publicly that's different. But if you ever publicly correct a person in the comment section due to the blasting people, do you, yo, if you really cared, why were you in the comments? Why you ain't DM me, yo? Why you ain't DM me and come close? Like, yo, excuse me, excuse me, what's your name, first of all? Do I even know you, by the way? Like, as you correct me, do you know me? Do you know anything about me? And why is it important? Why did I say think about your mother? Because listen, our mothers we love so much that we want them to change. We want them to become better. Some of our mothers are great, great, that's great. But I'm saying if I want my mother to change and become better and you come in and just lay the hock down, we, go, we throw in blows, bro. You know what I'm saying? If I'm working on my mother slowly, 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 slowly helping her and you come in and just lay it down, sister, you know you're not doing that. Yo, meet me out in the parking lot, bro. <laughs> you know, what I mean? so, so it's about love. It's about love and truly desiring change. If you truly desire change, you're going to take a method that is most conducive to change actually happening. So two things being together, and we're going to conclude. He says, always have mercy on sinful people. First of all, we're all sinful. But when you see other people's sins, have mercy upon them. Number one, you love them. You care for them. And number two, always wish well. The summary of all that to me is anyone you're trying to give advice and help, imagine that's your mother. How would you talk to that person? And that may, that may sometimes, subhanAllah, it'll take a month just to get to a point because we're working slowly. Hey, mom, how you doing today? What you do today? Slowly, slowly, slowly. So may Allah make us of people who, who are compassionate and truly wish for the reformation of people, not just people who want to get the burden off their shoulders. Like I already told them, now God will deal with them. No, our interaction is not, I really desire your change and I love you and I care for you. So I'm going to do it in a way that's most conducive to actually you change so that's the last advice for today, Imam Muhasibi. He says, Always have mercy on people who are sinful. And never ever stop wishing and hoping for khair for the rest of the ummah. The Prophet said this, and I'm going to end, I promise. Whoever says the people are messed up, He's the most messed up of them. Man, I'm going to say it again. Man qala nas. Whoever says, man, all these people messed up. He's the worst of all of them. He's not seeing the chad. The, he's not seeing the, the ability for people to change and the love that Allah has. One scholar said, when Umar ibn Khattab, Umar ibn Khattab is a convert, right? Umar is a convert, right? Umar, Umar radiallahu anh, he's a convert, correct? One scholar said, subhanAllah, I heard this. I can't remember where. He said when Umar was worshiping idols, he was beloved by God. Because where he would end up. When Umar was worshiping idols. And we're like, look at this person. He was beloved by God. God knew where he was going to end up. You never know. Have mercy on people. Love people. Truly care for their transformation. And don't look at it as just, I got to get this off my shoulders. May Allah accept from us, inshallah ta'ala. Um, yeah, we'll continue from here next week, inshallah ta'ala. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Any questions, actually? Any questions?